You're listening to a Westpac Wire podcast, westpacwire.com.au. Hi everyone, my name's James Thornhill and I'm the editor of Westpac Wire and I'm delighted to be joined today by Westpac Director Nerida Caesar. Nerida, thanks for your time. Pleasure, great to be here. Now you've been on Westpac's board since 2017 and hold other directorships including with MBN, Creditor Watch and others. Before that, you built up an enviable CV as a top executive with several blue chip businesses over a career spanning more than three decades. That's included senior roles at IBM and Telstra and as chief executive of credit reporting group Vida, you managed its transition from private to public listed company, as well as the group's subsequent takeover by Equifax. You're also chairman of the not-for-profit body Workplace Giving Australia. So Nerida, you've had such a rich and varied career, both in Australia and overseas. What for you have been the defining moments? Thanks, James, and thank you very much for having me in today. It's great to be here and, uh, and talk and share some of the reflections. Defining moments, it's a really great question. And I think over a long and varied career, I've had a lot of defining moments, but I think I've had a couple that have created that uh, T intersection where if you had have gone left, it might have taken a certain path and I turned right. Um, so as I look back, <clears throat> every five years, I decided to do a checkpoint with myself. Am I in the right career? Do I need to make a change? Uh, I was at IBM for 20 years, so that was a very long couple of decades, but an in- incredible period because technology was changing so quickly. I had to keep reinventing myself to make sure I was stepping up and stepping out. But at every five-year mark, I definitely went and did a different job, if not in between, but typically around that four or five-year mark. And I did have a couple of really uh, defining times. I think the first one was when I decided uh, to really take an overseas assignment. And it was a big choice. I was in my early 30s. Um, I was working in an area of IBM uh, that had a a primary focus up in um, Asia. So I went up into Hong Kong to live. And at a very young age, it was quite daunting, moving countries, learning a new culture, learning to operate with a customer environment in a different country. But it was a career that put me out of my comfort zone in everything I did. I was part of a global industry uh, of IBM's, the travel and transportation sector. Uh, the customer I was working on was Cathay Pacific. We were crafting a billion dollar smart sourcing deal that was going to change the way the airline did business. And I was leading that transaction. Big transaction, so I had lots of attention, you know, for all the right reasons. Um, but it was one that I remember in my early days, having to do things that I hadn't done before, you know, meeting with the CEO of these companies, having to present, having to craft the value proposition, competing against 20 companies globally. Um, So I think that role then set me up for when I came back into Australia, I took on more and more senior management roles. Another defining period was when um, one of the senior executives said to me, Nerida, it's about time you start managing people. I said, okay, because I'd been an individual contributor uh, for about 10 years and I love that role, customer facing. But when I took on the management of people, it was a whole new pathway that opened up. So I'd say early days, um, they were definitely a couple of, you know, terrific times. And then at the 20 year mark, I decided I needed ASX experience. So I left IBM, again, a hard choice because it was a wonderful career, joined Telstra and I went in to run... um, 
the sales division of the enterprise unit. So it was a large $5 billion part of Telstra's business, um, very high transaction, dealing with all of the large customers around Australia. And eventually, a couple of years later, I took over that division to run it. That taught me a whole range of things that I didn't have in my skills from IBM. It taught me how to manage capital, taught me how to manage the full set of financial accounts you know, for what was essentially a very large division. It reconnected me with Australian business, which was really, really important. It taught me how to manage a very large labour force, uh, which in IBM, when you're in a multinational subsidiary, you tend to be more reporting up these global, global lines. So I learned a lot of new things. I, um, I started to then complete the circle of technology with the network um, and understand the network and the critical part that it played. Probably in the latter part of my career, another defining moment was the listing of Vida um, on the ASX. So I joined the private equity firm uh, to go and be CEO of what, after a, a big career in a very large telco, was a very small P&L. Um, the biggest fear I had, could I run something so much smaller? And could I be as hands-on as I knew I needed to be? And it's interesting because I think you have that muscle memory and I just slotted back in, even though I was CEO, the detail at which we had to run, uh, the smaller scale of company. But after about 24 months, the private equity firm said, equity markets are open, we're ready to go. It was probably two years before I expected. And in 2013, we listed on the ASX and we had a terrific debut. Um, and then 24 months after that, we sold to Equifax for two and a half billion. So we went from sort of a 700 mil val company uh, to two and a half billion in roughly, uh, well, pretty well spot on five years. So it was a very fast journey. So yeah, huge, huge transition. And, and, and thank you for, for sharing those those uh, key inflection points in your career. And of course, you've been in a position to see a lot of change over, over your career. Uh, what are the biggest differences you, you see now in the business world compared to when you were starting out? Mm. If I was to, to think about that from the consumer end, I think it's the speed at which consumers have expectations. Um, if you look at any digital service, you know, we're prepared to wait about two seconds. If it's three, 40% walk away. So you think about that speed at the front end of how we deal as consumers into a business. And from a business, um, again, if I reflect back to my very early years, the detail at which we manage now, and you really need to be an operating executive, is far beyond what it ever was. The environment in which we operate, the regulatory environment, how companies are governed, how they use technology, um, how they innovate, it's much more fluid. It's incredibly faster. You know, I remember back in my early years at IBM when there'd be a change in the, you know, technology or the chip manufacturing that we thought back then was a significant leap. In today's world, um, you know, you can't even draw the comparisons. It's, it's totally different. So I think the speed of change, um, our ability to make anything happen through technology and what we as consumers expect and therefore what do businesses have to deliver um, to, you know, to drive market share, to, to drive the performance of a company and to really attract that long-term customer loyalty. Very different marketplace. You know, I remember back again when I was in IBM, um, the technology when I was in Hong Kong and serving the airline, we had data centers that were enormous footprints, water-cooled technology, um, 
that literally overnight went down to the filing cabinet size. And you think about that shift in technology and how that has accelerated. It's changed our, our way of, of being able to conduct business with our customers. Um, and I think it's a really exciting era in which we now live. Sure, certainly the speed of change, you know, is, is pretty uh, pretty fast these days. Um, and, you know, you've uh, you've already spoken about your experiences um, in leadership at some you know, very, very uh, high-profile companies. Um, I wonder what those experiences have taught you about what, what makes a good leader. Mm. And that's, that's a great question as well. I, I remember, again, as a very young um, IBMer starting out, looking at different leaders and thinking, what is it that I like in leaders and what should I try to emulate? And I, I was fortunate enough in my early career to have some executives that I reported directly to who understood strategy but also understood the operating rhythm of a company. And I learned an awful lot from them. And I remember um, I was running one of the divisions here in Australia and the chap I was reporting to was in Asia. Uh, we had the worldwide boss coming out and all of his team. And my immediate direct manager in, who lived up in Asia said to me, Nerit, I'm going to tell you one important fact. You must present the full financial statements of the division you're running, not your CFO. I said, hmm, okay, that's, that's great advice. And it might have been something I was going to do anyway, I don't know, but I was literally six weeks into this new job and it was a big P&L and we had manufacturing, you know, so we had a complex uh, manufacturing, it had business customers, consumers, large distribution channels through all multi-distribution. And I, I remember saying to him, his name was Ravi, I said, Ravi, I've been here six weeks. Um, yes, I can do that. It's going to take a bit of study and a bit of effort. Um, but that message stayed with me for a long time. And it was all about knowing your business. So I think be agile, stay current. Currency, I think, is such an enormous aspect of being a leader. And stay current by, um, you know, not just reading, but meeting with a diverse range of people, attending different things in industry. Um, I love self-learners and I always talk about companies need to be self-learning companies, you know, individuals in the company who have a thirst for learning something new, seeing how something can be applied differently, challenging the status quo. And I think as a leader, you have to be like that. I think the other thing about a great leader is that they are focused on the customer. One of the things that I have done for all of my career, so right back in IBM when I was in senior management roles across to Telstra and absolutely at Vita, I chaired the Customer Sat Council. So I made sure there was one in place. Uh, I had a diverse group of people on that council. We would create what are the streams we have to do to make our business better using our customers' feedback. I always chaired that council, always. And we would never miss a beat. We'd create streams of work, take customer feedback, change the business, morph the business, um, and it paid back every time. So I think, again, when you step into that type of role as a leader, people emulate you. And I used to have the team often say, Nerida, you've done more customer meetings than we have this week, you know, for some of the heads of sales. Um, and that wasn't intentional. It was just I would get into the flow. I would start meeting with clients. One would lead to the next. The team would call me in on something else. And that's where I love to be. And I felt like I really thrived when I was at the front. Yeah, th thanks for for those insights, uh, Nerida. Um, let me turn now maybe to your to your current role with Westpac. You've been on the board 
um, through some fairly challenging times mm. um, for the bank and, and the world in general as we emerge from the COVID lockdowns, of course. Um, how have you found the experience so far and, and are, you, are you positive for the future? Yeah, so James, I often get asked, if you knew what you knew now, would you have joined? And I can categorically say yes. So I joined about three months before the Royal Commission was uh, announced. I came in when that was in the press. There was quite a lot of conversation about it. So I joined knowingly coming in. And I remember saying to the chairman at the time, I actually want to be part of the fix. You know, I know the bank will go through a lot. The industry will go through a lot. And I'd rather be on that journey and, you know, that old that saying about lean in, you know, lean in and help be part of... Um, recreating the bank of the future and what, what that's going to look like. So I have stuck to that and I say that with absolute honesty that I wouldn't change a thing if I was to look back. Um, I do feel really positive about the future. I think we have got a great opportunity, not just as Westpac, but as an industry to change the way people work and live and to contribute in, in ways that we could never have imagined possible. And it's through how we're going to deploy technology. Um, I was just talking to someone today, actually, um, outside of Westpac, and we were just talking about, uh, you know, the amount of, uh, you know, cyber incidences and so on. And I said, oh, do you know Westpac has a, um, the CC, uh, CVC where you can just change it dynamically when you're actually doing ordering? That is such a clever creation. You know, it's the tip of the iceberg of where we're going to take our business and help our customers. So I am really positive about the future. I know 2023 is going to be, you know, very challenging for a lot of people. Um, we're heading into some tough economic times and uh, and you look at, you know, all of the things going on around the world. But I think we've got a really important role to play in that, not just about serving customers every day, but our role in climate change you know, broader and more diverse environmental matters. I think we play such a critical, critical, you know, role in uh, in the economy and society. So it is an exciting path ahead. Sure, yeah, I, I think you're right. As, as you mentioned, we are heading through th difficult times, but that's when banks like Westpac come into their own in terms of helping people, right? Exactly. And much to be optimistic about. Absolutely. If we can crunch through these uh, these next few months. Um, so let's delve a little bit deeper um, into into your past uh, your past experience, and I'm particularly interested in the role you, you took on at Vida. Um, you know, making as as you mentioned, making that transition from a private to a public listed company to a hugely successful IPO. Um, what insights did you draw from that in terms of the difference between running a private company as opposed to a to a public listed company? Mm, they're very very different, as you say. I wouldn't say that. I like one over the other more so. They are just very, very different. And <clears throat> when I was in the private equity company, uh, you know, we did not have all of the aspects of governance that we need to deal with in an ASX. So the time spent on strategy, growth, customers um, was extensive. And really when, when you enter the private equity world, the view is on the exit. So it's, it's always building for the future with a view to exit that company, uh, which makes it a really interesting dynamic. Um, you know, there's a very tough um, aspect on performance, if you know me as CEO, but all of the team as well. Uh, but there's a very entrepreneurial sort of spirit, if I can put it that way. So it would really be the balance of time on strategy and customers and growth that would be, you know, different 
um, not better or worse, just different in the in the ASX world because of the balance of time that we have to put on all of the other aspects of, of running an ASX company. Um, yeah, different, not better. Certainly, um, you know, make a make a good point about the entrepreneurial side of things. We, you know, maybe maybe more licensed to do that in a private company. Yes. Um, which brings me on to, I mean, have to ask you about uh, technology and you, you know your your vast experience in in that particular sector. You've worked for some of the the most highly innovative companies in the world. Um, where staying the, staying ahead of the game on technological change is is really vital to their success. Um, from those experiences. What did you take from what companies do that, that sets them apart from the pack, you know, in that area? Mm. So I've always had a school of thought that says you can build a product or service to meet a market need or you can build a product and service to lead a market change and need. And it's the companies that are, are really in the forefront that I think create the need the customer didn't know they had. Um, and we can look at things going on around us every day. You know, if you were to reflect back on Uber and 10 years ago we said to you, James, you know, would you get in a total stranger's car and travel from point A to point B? It would have been a very foreign concept. And you look how they've now led that market. I also remember back in 2007 when BlackBerry hit the market and the iPhone. And I remember a lot of my colleagues saying, why would you want to carry this around and have your email so accessible? I wanted that technology. I knew, I, you know, I had a little bit of an insight into what was going to be coming in terms of the apps, how we were going to run our life, um, having email at the fingertips. To me, that was a high productivity tool, speed of execution, being able to respond to customers more quickly. So I think, you know, those that are innovative are always not only thinking about their customer and the segment they're going to serve, but they're thinking very deeply about how to change, how to change the world of how we work and live. Um, and there are common themes. You know, it's interesting. You hear all the language around fast fail. I don't actually like that language. Um, I prefer to see the team move quickly, iterate fast, and succeed. I know fails will happen. But I don't really use language about fast fail when it comes to technology. I use language more around innovate, be very agile, create for change, and focus on getting a great product outcome. And you can only do that when you engage the customer in that process. And of course, um, disruption and change is just such an integral part of, of technology. Uh, and we've seen such huge change uh, in technology over the over the years and over the course of your career, and and the pace shows no signs of slowing, and particularly the pandemic has accelerated a lot of these trends. Um, are there any particular trends that you, you're you're excited about heading into the future? Yeah, I think in terms of trends and then perhaps sectors, you know, healthcare, incredible when you look at what's going on in healthcare around the world and the billions of dollars now being spent uh, in that sector. That's going to change so dramatically, and we're seeing the early signs of that. I was in—I um, was fortunate enough to be on one of the Garvin subboards years ago that started genomics uh, here in Australia. And when you think about genomics and precision medicine and where that's going, and how disease will be cured, um, you know, in the future, I think that's interesting. You know, climate tech, new energy solutions—again, an enormously growing area. Um, but I think also AI. You know. I've read articles where it talks about by 2025, you know, AI will be a $200 billion industry and, you know, the whole machine learning. 
the metaverse, five trillion by 2030, according to McKinsey. McKinsey, you know, they are big numbers by any measure. And I think the metaverse, uh, whilst today a lot of the material talks to, you know, the use of it in businesses, I think it's going to become a very pervasive technology that today we can't even imagine how it will be used. Um, we, we're seeing early, you know, early examples and different ways that it's being used, but I think that is going to unpack very, very quickly now that we've got the compute scale available for it. And certainly something we could, that, that could be applied to, you know, answering some of the world's most pressing problems, I yeah, guess. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, let me let me change tack a little bit uh, and, and turn to your involvement in, in with Workplace Giving Australia. Um, I'm interested to hear you know why that's a subject so close to your heart. Yeah, I really enjoy the charity. And um, interestingly, when I joined Workplace Giving as chair, uh, we have a capability that consults to the corporate uh, around connecting in the payroll. So individuals can give as little as a dollar a week to the charity that aligns to the corporate values. As I started looking at it and talking to the board, the one thing I said to the board, without a platform, we will only scale so far. So we actually undertook a merger last year, and I think it was the largest charity merger that's been done in Australia, if I'm right. We merged equal merger with Good to Give, and Good to Give have a platform. I know we use it here at Westpac. Um, so the, the chair of Good to Give and myself, we actually co-chair. It works really well. We're very like-minded. Um, we can co-chair a meeting with ease. Uh, we think very similarly. So we hired a terrific CEO and, uh, and put our boards together. And we've, we've had the benefit of having uh, Bain & Company on our board. So they've helped us enormously with our strategy. And I learned a few things that I didn't know about this industry. You know, there are 14 million people on payroll. 200,000 give. We are at the lowest of the curve globally. We have a long way to go and a lot of opportunity. So out of out of the 200-odd thousand that give, that creates about $80 million a year of matched money from the individual and the corporate. We believe um, over the years ahead, out of 14 million, there could be three to four million if we get the technology right, who could do easily donate. And imagine if you're on your Westpac app and you've got your giving circle, but then you've got your own um, environment where you can give to the charities of your choice. And we think if we open that up to consumers, we could have three, four million people giving and take giving from circa 80 million to 300 million. That would change the face of many, many aspects of the underprivileged for Australia. And it's a model that we can take uh, globally. Lots of opportunity to scale that up. Um, Certainly are, it's really exciting. So finally, Nerida, you're a strong advocate for nurturing young executive talent. Um, from your years of experience in business, what advice would you give to a young aspiring leader just setting out on their career? I would say stick at the job that you are doing for long enough to become good and to make a difference. We too often see young people, you know, they pop out of university, this chop and change. Don't do that. Come into a role, become great become an expert and stand back and say, what difference have I made in the life of our customer, business or consumer? Because every single role in the company eventually leads to a customer. So what have I done to drive change and how have I become an expert in this field before you go and make another move? That would be my one piece of advice. 
Sounds like good advice to me. Um, I think that's a good place to leave it now, Joan. And thanks so much for your time. Uh, thanks for joining us and, and best of luck for the future. Thank you, James. That's all from us today at Westpac Wire. For more, head to westpacwire.com.au.